politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers, and all around good Americans yearning for the truth. You have found the truth here at the CR Podcast at Blaze TV. Daniel Horowitz back in the house Thursday as we head towards the end of this week and the end of this year. Just so you know, I will be out uh, much of next week on a special training that we'll talk about at some point. But I hope to at least do a few podcasts, two or three, between those two weeks of Christmas and New Year's when everyone's on vacation. Um, maybe I'll pre-record one as well. But, you know, Friday will be the last regular day. We'll hopefully have a few more to monitor the big stuff going on. And and boy, is there a lot going on. Uh, yesterday was, I forgot to mention, the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, December 16th. And that's the question. What is it going to take? What is it going to take when we have people like Larvita? We had her on the show a couple days ago. She is now being threatened with imprisonment while child killers are being released by these very same dirtbag, subhuman vermin politicians. This is biblical. This is no longer about the things it was even a year ago. This is about a country that is large. It is a huge country, but it is not big enough for two competing worldviews so diametrically opposed. You know, I wrote a book five years ago, published four years ago, Stolen Sovereignty. And it was largely about the judiciary and about illegal immigration, the policy side, the legal side of it. But it really encompassed everything. Because what I was really warning about from a legal sense, but it's certainly true from a cultural and political policy sense as well, <clears throat> is that we have a competing worldview that is upside down, inside out. It's not just, okay, we disagree on policy A, we disagree on policy B. It's we have a demonic, dystopian view from the extreme left that runs everything. It runs both parties. It runs all the states. It runs all institutions. It runs the courts. It runs the political branches. Where they believe fundamental rights are flipped on its head. You can't, you can't run away from such a fight. And this is why we need a national divorce. You can't live harmoniously with people who believe murderers are people to have sympathy on and business owners are murderers. You can't bridge that divide. This is the point we need to understand. And I want to explore just how this republic run off, ran off the rails and how Madison's principle of establishing it, I think, still does apply today and is the best we can do in terms of fighting back. As well as to go into some of the other um, news of the day I want to get to. But I first want to mention just one of the byproducts I've seen, the consequences of COVID psychosis that has taken over everyone happened here locally, and I'm sure it happened in other places as well. So 
where I live in Baltimore County, the public schools are, are still closed. Now, the private schools decide to open, but not really. They decided to open, albeit with a psychosis that in some ways is worse than being shut and just having Zoom. Obviously, they're with a mask, child abuse, this whole testing regime. Anyone at any given time who was within a a thousand feet of a child who tested asymptomatically, which as we know from the CT cycles, especially with children, a lot of them are are false or, or nebulous positives that aren't transmissible. They don't mean anything anyway. They have to be quarantined for two weeks. So at any given time, you have half the schools out anyway. But they're, they, they really pride themselves on staying open. They're so obsessed with staying open that sometimes it's not even worth it. So we have to be safe than sorry, right? So anyone who's been exposed to anyone anytime that's asymptomatic, even if they're children, and this is less than the flu, and we never do this for the flu season, we're going to do this. We care about safety. It's better to err on the side of caution. So something very interesting happened yesterday in my community, my neighborhood, really throughout the county. And that is the public school, the the private schools, violated their typical modus operandi with school closures in terms of inclement weather and snow. You had that big northeastern snowstorm, the nor'easter. Now, Look, obviously, some places, they're always open with snow or ice. They rarely close. That is not the case here in Maryland. They close at the drop of the hat. We often wind up having a lot of rain days where it's nothing but rain and it's above freezing the entire time, but they're scared. They wind up closing for nothing. And we could debate the merits of that. But the point is, that's how they've been typically. This time, they so badly wanted to show that they were open and overcompensate. Because the only safety concern in life is COVID. That's how much of a cult it is. That they decided to close early school when it was too late. So basically, not to bore you with weather. I didn't mean to talk about weather, but you'll I'll get to my point in a minute. So for a while, they're talking about the storm of the century or whatever, biggest storm in a number of years. And, and for areas that were in the mountains and further inland, it certainly was big. Um, But over time, in the 72 hours leading up to the storm, every day, it kind of got less and less for the I-95 corridor, for the major metro areas where the coastal low, the models had the coastal low coming in in and in more and more inland, which brings the warm air more and more. And it was basically like, yeah, maybe overnight at the end of the day, you'll turn back to snow, but it's basically going to be rain most of the day, some slushy stuff. And so the schools open regularly. Even though very early on, it started snowing very heavily and the temperatures were like 28, 29 degrees. And very early on, you know, 9, 10, certainly 11 o'clock, it was clear it was going to be an overachiever. It's clear that the models, or at least the last 24 hours of models were over, were, were too dovish. And we don't need models anymore. We see the reality. And basically, it was clear, and I was saying, look, you know, they should, I'm glad I took my kids out, but my sister was freaking out with her kid in school. They should have closed at 11 o'clock. But they didn't decide to like one one thirty to close. 
And then they decide to, even then, not to close immediately, but to close at like 2.30, a lot of the schools in my area. And by then we knew the freezing rain was going to start. So you had the freezing rain on top of snow. And even if you're more of like a northerner is like, dude, I'm not scared of snow. But the freezing rain is not is not good to drive in. I mean, no matter how you slice it. You know, I'm not an alarmist with snow, but, you know, that, that especially given the threshold and the standard for decades in this area, it was extremely unusual how reluctant they were to close school. Okay? And what wound up happening is there were tons of accidents in the area. Hundreds of kids in one of the local schools here was, they were shunted into the auditorium, but of course they were safe. They put out messages, they're safe. They had to wait for hours while the roads were cleared. A lot of people didn't get home till the night, and even when they went home, it was in freezing rain, in the dark, on top of compacted snow on the roads that couldn't be cleared because it turned into ice. But at least they were wearing masks. Perhaps maybe they should have worn masks on the car. You know, there's the two... Side mirrors, it could be like those ear loops. You could put a mask on the car and it protects you from a car crash. Maybe we could put a mask on the clouds to stop the snow. But I want to make two points from here. Number one, I'm kind of a weather geek. I mean, I, I never really talked about it much, but I minored it in college. I'm into meteorology. I don't know why. That's just how I am. And there's people I follow online that have their own analysis, aside from the kind of the, like drive-by forecast you see from the weather channel or your local tv station and look you know models are models and as we've known they could predict of course how the world is going to be in 100 years with temperatures but they can't predict beyond 24 12 hours where a storm is going to go and that's fine we all recognize that we all recognize that but then there's reality when you start seeing you don't have to project with models and you're going to notice the verbiage I'm using sounds awfully similar to the COVID fascism. It actually, you know, it starts, you're like, dude, okay, you got to revisit your thinking as soon as you realize that. You can't have collateral damage going on the minute you know the assumption you put into your first choice is no longer true. And I was seeing, you know, I was, as I was doing work, I was following my guys that I typically do on weather, and they were clear, like, dude, the, the coastal low is staying farther off for longer. This is going to be almost entire day. This is going to be below freezing. And the school afterwards put out a notice, like, well, you know, we have to rely on weather forecasts, as you know, are inaccurate. I was like, well, indeed, you have to rely on inaccurate COVID stuff, too. Broadly speaking, the internet is a beautiful thing in that you could deal with the sheeple drive-by nonsense or you could dig a little deeper and there are sources to find the truth about something. It's true of the weather and it's certainly true of every other policy issue, including the COVID cult. But the, the second more overarching point I want to make, I didn't mean to go so long on this, but I, I do think it's important, is that they are so maniacally obsessed with COVID, which is not a threat to children, that they forget the threats that are with us every day that are scientifically proven by opening your eyes. That if you have roads that have freezing rain on them and, you know, the private schools, especially, they don't have too many buses. So it's they, they rely on carpools. So you have so many more people and vehicles out on the road to go to 
back and forth from these schools. And, you know, it's like, yeah, let's stay open. Let's show that we're open because we have to savor every last moment of in-person instruction. And of course, there were a number of accidents. And what was shocking was today we thought they would overcompensate it iced over overnight. It's known a little bit more. Again, based historically on the standard for Baltimore County, they would have been closed. They decided to only open late. And the roads aren't that great. I mean, again, if you're if you're a pro from Buffalo, from Minneapolis, you're gonna laugh at it. But for this area, they've never done that before. But again, they don't care anymore. They care about one danger. And this is emblematic of the broader thing. They don't care about the psychological damage to children. They don't care about the drug overdoses. They don't care about anything in life from lockdowns, COVID, COVID, COVID. But that's that. How did we get to a point where we are so maniacal? Now, I want to share with you a special clip from a movie. We don't have the voice of Madison, unfortunately. We have his writings. But in my view, the closest thing to it is the person who played Madison in the movie A More Perfect Union. It was produced by Brigham Young University in 1989, distributed by Bridgestone Multimedia. You could find it on YouTube. You could find it online. I've watched it a couple times in my life. Beautifully done. It simulates the the Constitutional Convention, they really do a good job just getting the tone, the character of each of the founders. Very well done, and I revisited because I'm up to the Constitution with my my oldest son homeschooling, and I'm having him watch the movie. And I wanted to share a 50-second clip with you because, you know, I could read Madison's view but I think they really did it well with the music and the drama to show what an important moment it was at the convention. And basically, as you all know, they came to the Constitutional Convention thinking that they would just revise the Articles of Confederation. Fundamentally, you weren't going to have a federal union, a federal government. Um, it would be the states kind of just confederating. And you're just going to give the Con- Continental Congress a couple of extra powers, power to tax regulate interstate commerce. Those were the sticky issues. But you weren't going to create a president. You weren't going to create a federal judiciary. You weren't going to create a Congress that was all-encompassing. You weren't really going to have a federal government. And Madison, and, and Madison by no means was trying to push a federal government that we have today. You know, Alexander Hamilton was more down that line. He eventually opposed bigger federal power grabs, but he felt you needed some degree of a federal government. And even that, he had to convince them. And he gave a speech, and this is all built upon his research from all the books he got from Jefferson and France that it was shipped to him, studying other republics and other systems. And George Mason got up there and said, Mr. Madison, wait a minute. Isn't it true that, you know, states are better to protect us from tyranny? You could have more tyranny at a federal level. The assumption was that the smaller the republic you have, the better it is for liberty. And the larger the republic, the more potential to have 
an overbearing tyrannical system. And Madison said something very interesting, which turned out to be the entire premise in swaying people to go along with the federal system. Now, they still had many, many very strong debates about the representation, proportionality in Congress, and how to elect the executive and the power of the president, all sorts of things. But this was early on on May 30th. So again, this is the clip from A More Perfect Union produced by Brigham Young University, distributed by Bridgestone Multimedia. Take a listen to Madison's reply. All societies are made up of warring factions, rich against the poor, religion against religion, race against race. A small republic, like a state, too often falls prey to one of these factions. The result? Lawlessness and oppression, especially against the minorities. It is only in a large republic with many different-minded people that no one faction can gain control. In such a republic, the liberties of all the people are naturally safeguarded. Such a republic, if it were dedicated to justice, protected by truth, and of the spirit of the people, would, I believe, last through the ages, but first it must exist. Now, folks, you could hear the drama there, and I think they played it out very well. And this is a point that Madison had to reiterate to convince the state ratifying conventions to go along with the Constitution, and he he really hammered it out in Federalist Number 10. And he said, basically, the point is, the smaller the unit of government is, you have a tiny place, it's easier for a faction to get control and usurp. Now, mind you, they never envision what we have today, a minority of elites usurping everyone. They thought it would be more like, you know, you had the farmers and you had the merchants and you had different factions. And one would gain power. They were actually worried more about the common men gaining power over what was considered back then the lawyers, the elites, the educated people. That's really what they were concerned about. Elective despotism. Now we have it with a much different wrinkle. But his point was, if you have a tiny state like Rhode Island, he's like, there's so much corruption. They easily seize power, they easily have control, and it's hard to dislodge it. Whereas if you have a massive federal union, it's so diversified. Even if you have tyranny in certain aspects of government, certain places, you could always move to another place and say, look, we'll, we'll bring our faction there. Now, you might say, well, isn't it better to have just the states? So the whole point is you could always move to another state. But I think the problem is if you don't have a federal union, you don't necessarily get admitted to that state. You couldn't necessarily move around. I mean, that was the whole issue. So you're stuck in that state. Whereas when you have a federal union, but filtered through states, that hybrid that he was pushing is really the best system because – on the one hand, it, it diffuses the tyranny a little bit. So it can't be concentrated only in the state, but the state is not the only show in town. You have the feds. So they might be able to control some states. They might be able to control the federal government, 
But if they put their resources into that, you could take your faction and at least find a couple of states where you could live freely. That that was like the premise of worst case scenario of what to do when you have tyranny at the hands of government. And this was a very vexing issue. Now, you might listen to Madison and laugh like, are you kidding me? The federal government is even worse. We don't have anywhere to go. But he wasn't wrong. And we could still use his principle. The reason I think why it didn't work out is because when they thought of factions, they thought of classes of people. They didn't. And so they thought you would have, you know, a legislative branch, judiciary, an executive branch, and then filtered between feds and states and their respective branches. And between it all, they felt it would be diffused. The problem is the factions all turned into one thing, and those are political parties. Those are political parties. And the political parties wound up getting a monopoly on that power. So rather than organic constituencies, you had political parties. And rather than branches of government, state, federal, it's just two parties, Republicans and Democrats. And you know you, you don't have the legislature checking the executive and vice versa and states checking the feds and feds checking the states. You just have a manifestation of Republicans and Democrats. Now, the system worked for most of our history because the parties generally did reflect their constituencies to a degree. It's corruption, there's issues, but they generally, you know, for the most part, in the 1800s, for better or for worse, the Republicans represented the North, the Democrats represented slavery in the South, and they, they, they fought for their people. But then over time is when we had this postmodern elitist globalist Marxist takeover, where it first started in the Democrat Party and then really with the leftist party and in any of these Western countries. But then it infected the supposed right-leaning party. So you had a scenario now where the elites took over both parties. And while the Democrat Party does reflect its constituents, what they want, or at least the core of their base, what they want, the Republican Party certainly doesn't represent their constituents. So you don't have factions anymore. Factions aren't good, but Madison's point is they're a reality and at least the best thing is to have multiple factions. Once you're going to have factions, you don't want two. You want multiple. The problem is we had it in the political party system, so we didn't get multiple factions. We only had two, so it was a duopoly. But it was really a duopoly that was a monopoly and a unibrow that morphed into one. So only one side is represented. Our The people are never represented in anything. And that's how we have it in all the states at the federal level. This is what we have. This is what we have, folks. And I think that's why, like, for example, what you basically have is Pepsi and Coke. Imagine if you want a beverage and the only beverage in town is Pepsi and Coke. Are there really two choices? Now, people will swear by the taste of each and they're very into it. But if you don't like soda... I mean, I love soda, but if that's not your cup of tea, 
so to speak, then you're screwed because I mean, you know, you, you could argue all you want over the differences between Pepsi and Coke. And there might be some differences, but dude, practically it's the same. And that's really what it is. We have these sharp debates over one sticking point in the omnibus and one sticking point in the COVID bill and one sticking point in the NDAA and one sticking point in everything. But fundamentally, on 99% of the rest of it, they're exactly the same. And we are left disenfranchised. We don't have anywhere to take our faction because anywhere it is, it's the Republican Party. And that's why we need to create a new party yesterday. But I do still think, folks, I do still think that we could use Madison's principle and if we apply all of our political capital and our resources and our organizing to just a few smaller areas, we could win them back. That is possible. But we're going to have to close ranks because time is running out. We are losing our liberty beyond belief. It is lost. It's funny, Madison spoke of a large republic to diffuse factions. The problem is you cannot have a large enough republic to house such malignant views. And that's the thing he was talking about. Also, here's another difference why it didn't work out is because they never envisioned masochism, civilization masochism. They knew they they envisioned selfish interests. Farmers want their thing. The merchants want these trade policies. They didn't realize you'd have people that think a criminal is a victim. A victim is a criminal. A man's a woman. A woman's a man. You can't, you can't have a republic large enough to diffuse such malignancy. That's the problem we live in today. Think about what's going on with Tim Waltz and his dirtbag attorney general, Keith Ellison, in... Minnesota. Just think about it for a minute. You have on the same day that they voted, the two of them, because it's a parole board and the attorney general and governor are part of it, they voted to release a child killer. They are threatening and filing in court to lock up Larvita McFarker for opening her business. You cannot have a country with two competing worldviews, where one views the carjackings, 537% increase in carjackings in Minneapolis. They don't care. That's not a crime. Think about this for a moment. Think about this. Fundamental rights. The job of a government to secure the blessings of liberty and security for a people. You have a scenario now. You have this guy, Myron, what's his name? Uh, Mayan Burrell. In 2002, he was convicted of shooting. He was basically trying to kill someone in a gang war. The bullet strayed and wound up killing uh, Taisha Edwards, 11-year-old girl, in her home while she was like doing homework. It, it got her in the house. It was a stray bullet. Probably wasn't hollow point and um, hit her in the heart. He claims he didn't do it, but the the guy who was the initial the original victim of the shooting um, testified that he pulled the trigger. This guy's own cousin and jailmate testified that he um, 
he confessed to them. And Tim Waltz said, I'm following the science. Well, this guy killed, I think he was only 16 or 17. We cannot turn a blind eye to the developments in science and law as we look at this case. We can't shackle our children in 2020. We need to grow as our science grows. Think about that. It's all about the science that you can't lock up someone who murders before they're 18. Notice how he says we can't shackle our children. Isn't that irony rich? The science says we can't incarcerate teenage killers. The science says we must declare war on cops and incarceration, which leads to utter terror, fear, and carjackings in Minneapolis. The science says that same-sex couples can biologically impregnate each other. The science says that diners have to dine outside in zero-degree weather in Minnesota, but outdoor hockey designed to be played in the cold must be canceled. And the science says that business owners are a threat to the public. Are you seeing a pattern, folks? The science says. It's like a game of Simon Says. The science says that you're a threat to me. There is so much crime now in Ramsey and Hennepin counties that they're forced to call in police from surrounding areas. Carjackings have been up 537% in November over November last year. There's now a crime rate of four, a victimization rate of 42 per thousand residents in St. Paul as one of the highest crime rates in America compared to all communities of all sizes. One's chance of becoming a victim of either violent or property crime in St. Paul is 1 in 24. Now think about your chances of dying of COVID from an asymptomatic person. We're going to talk about that. Ramsey County's prison population shrank by 43% from 2010 to 2019. And 2019 is last year. That's before the massive jailbreak. In Hennepin County, just in recent months, they've reduced their jail population by 40%. They lifted bail requirements for 20 felony level crimes just two weeks ago. Keith Ellison was on a conference call announcing the lifting of bail requirements for 20 felony level crimes. And on that conference call, Mike Freeman, the attorney from Hennepin County, he said, we don't want to clog up our jails with persons who are not a threat so that we have space and the money to hold violent offenders. Former Ramsey County attorney, Susan Gartner told KSTP that It's not unusual to have someone with multiple felony convictions who barely serves time there. Quote, we have in Minnesota one of the lowest incarceration rates in the country. Right now, we are the fourth from the bottom, and we put very few Minnesota citizens in prison compared to the rest of the country. But now we know what they mean when they say they want to save the jail space for violent offenders. Keith Ellison is filing in court to arrest Larvita McFarker. Single mom, not given a penny of federal compensation for shutting down her business. She has no way to support her family. You cannot live in a society where there's a fundamental right for a murderer to be let out, but not for a business owner to to earn a living. You cannot live in a society 
where there's a fundamental right to get handouts and freebies, but not to earn the fruits of your own labor and your own business. You, you can't deal with that. Like, people look at me like I'm from Mars. It says this in all constitutions, but the preamble of the Minnesota Constitution is that they're grateful to God for our civil and religious liberty and desiring to perpetuate its blessings and secure the same to ourselves and our posterior. With that, they start Article 1, Section 1 of the Minnesota Constitution. Government is instituted for the security, benefit, and protection of the people in whom all the political power is inherent, together with the right to alter, modify, or reform government whenever required by the public good. I mean, that is, in, that is the first line of the Minnesota Constitution. You have the right to alter your government. And we're not saying for causes like, I don't like your policies of the parks and the garbage collection or things that I think you're spending too much money. It is the fundamental contortion of the social compact when they are going and releasing violent criminals at the exact time they are making space for business owners. They are criminalizing our life. You can't do that. When you go and impose the most intimate tyranny on our body and our property and our ability to earn a living and educate our children and breathe free air, unmasked. If that is not grounds for a revolution, I don't know what is. We celebrate our Constitution. Even the left talks about the Constitution all the time. But then we scoff at the Declaration of Independence and all the state bills of rights that say one of the fundamental rights is that you are not locked into this. You cannot be ruled over. You have the right to alter such a government. You tell me this. This bastard comes and sends state state troopers to arrest you. How is that not self-defense in this situation? You tell me why you don't have a right to shoot back. Give me one good reason. And if the answer is no, what is the limit? What does government have to do? Because I think we all agree you reach a point where government is as evil as a murderer coming to murder you. We certainly see that in many regimes. When is that limit? Think about this. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. Definitely worth repeating. The Ninth Circuit ruled that the city of Boise cannot clean out encampments. There's a fundamental right to encamp on public streets. And they said to do so violates, it is, it is cruel and unusual punishment. And their point basically was, is that you're criminalizing something they can't help. You're criminalizing conduct that is unavoidable consequence of being homeless, namely sitting, lying, or sleeping on the streets. That was their point. Okay? Same thing they say with Medicaid. You have a right to Medicaid without having to seek employment. We we saw court cases on that. You have a right to take over public ground. You have the right to public programs. But that same logic doesn't apply when you have a woman that has no way to support her family. She's not asking for anything. She's not asking to be out on the streets. She has her own place. You can't keep it opened. You can set up shop on the street, but you can't set up shop in your home. You can set up a shop on the street and urinate, defecate on the street, vagrancy, shoot up drugs, trash the place, scare off pedestrians, but you cannot open a business when that is the only way you could support yourself. That somehow is not cruel and unusual punishment. 
You cannot live in a society like this anymore. And again, there's nothing we can do. We don't have the power. But it's got to start from the reddest areas and move on down from there. It's got to start local. And we got to make it very clear to the sheriffs that they need to stand up. Someone's got to sacrifice for this. And if you're one of these local sheriffs, it's like, okay, I won't arrest you, but I'm not going to stand up against state law enforcement, then you're just as bad. Because what's going to happen here, and it's already happening, is it's a conservative county, Lyon County, Minnesota, but the state is coming after her. That's why they took her to court in Ramsey County in St. Paul. At some point, the locals are going to have to have a standoff. You tell me the other way around this. I mean, again, a judge in Ohio, we talked about this yesterday, but there's another case now. A judge in Ohio slams Ohio policy against transgender birth certificate changes in ruling. Federal judge Wednesday blasted Ohio officials and the state's policy of preventing transgender people from changing the sex marker of their birth certificates. This is um, Cincinnati Inquirer, U.S. District Judge Michael Watson ordered that the policy be reversed immediately, calling it unconstitutional. (laughs) See, that's the thing. It's unconstitutional not to change biology on a birth certificate. But it's not unconstitutional to cover your mouth forcibly, close your business, close your school, close your church. Monitor you, quarantine you indefinitely. You tell me What are recourses? We talked about constitutional usurpations for the last five years. But dude, before this year, I could have never envisioned this degree of tyranny. We're not getting there. We are there beyond our worst nightmare. And it's all for a lie. All for a lie. We have so much COVID lie stories. I don't even know what to get to first. But let's try to get through some of this. Now, we know that the entire premise of the COVID fascism was all built on this notion of asymptomatic spread. See, they all exaggerated this police power to quarantine. It meant, you know, you're you're sitting and you're, you're, you come down with typhoid and whatever, you're sick with it. So, they, yeah, they quarantined you in the 1800s. But the notion that you could quarantine an entire nation indefinitely... Well, because at some point, maybe someone's asymptomatic. It was just like, it's legally absurd. And from a policy standpoint, if you remember, we played the clip a while back. Fauci said very early on that, hey, you know, asymptomatic, you might find once in a while someone spread it, but it's really doesn't drive an epidemic. And like every other premise that has built this fascism um, before it became political, even people like Fauci said what we said, and then they changed and then despite months worth of evidence that their original science was real science, of course, they don't change back because this is all about the fascism. This is not about um, science, much less the law. And by the way, th- th- this whole thing is brought out so beautifully, this um, dual system, the two-tier justice system, in the fact that you have a bunch of places now where you have gyms that are closed, but gyms for prisoners are are open. So the gyms in the prisons, you know, because they want to make sure that the criminals really jack up and get all strong 
So when they inevitably let them out, which is usually uh, sooner rather than later, they can do as much damage as possible. But I digress. There's a lot of news stories I didn't get a chance to share with you that really, you know, they, they lie at the at the core of what we're seeing with the COVID fascism, how each premise is a lie. So the asymptomatic thing. We've already seen a number of studies demonstrate that asymptomatic rarely spread. I mean, again and again and again, there's there's tons of studies. So what a group of researchers from um, University of Florida Gainesville and Cancer Research Center in Seattle did, and this is published in JAMA, okay? They took a look. They, 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 it's a meta-analysis, so it's not they didn't do their own study. They analyzed, they pulled together 54 studies that together cumulatively had a total of 77,758 participants and made observations based on them the chances of one infected person in the home infecting other people in the home. So it was all, this study was all household transmission. And their main thing was not to study asymptomatic. Their main thing was to study household transmission. They wanted to see like, okay, someone has it and then they go home and whatever, they live at home. What percentage of their contacts at home wind up getting it? You know, do 100% of them get it? So they found out that on average was called the secondary attack rate, meaning what percentage of people come into contact with the index case, the primary guy, wind up getting it. And they found in the household it was 16.6% was the attack rate, which was, you know, much higher than MERS and SARS were because it's more contagious, but it's not, you know, 50%. Is obviously more among spouses than than non uh, spouses living together, and it was the least among children because, as we know, not only do children rarely spread and children don't get it the virus um, seriously, but even just getting it at all is probably about fifty percent less than adults, meaning they're less likely to even like even test positive even with the forty uh, CT cycles. Okay. So anyway, they divided it among symptomatic and asymptomatic. So among symptomatic dudes, someone who had COVID, they tested positive, and they had symptoms, 18% of their contacts were infected secondarily, 18% infection rate. And of course, that number grew with severity. And this is, again, it's, it's been proven in study after study that the transmissibility works very closely, correlates closely with the... Um, severity. So if you really do have like a potentially lethal case, you're going to be the most severe. If it's very, very mild, you have maybe a couple of sensations in your body. You don't even have fever or cough or anything. Um, It's going to be very little. Um, But then you go all the way down to asymptomatic. It was just 0.7%. In other words, symptomatic people Okay, symptomatic people are 26 times more likely to spread than asymptomatic. Okay, so this entire thing is built on a lie, but I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. It's truly hard to overstate the significance of this finding. 
And the public still is in the dark about this. We're sitting in like this whole like voodoo. You walk away from someone on a sidewalk. Uh, you can't be uh, stores have to be shut down. Restaurant owners have to be criminalized. I mean, even if this were true, you couldn't violate the Constitution like that. But the thing is, the secondary attack rate. Remember, folks. We are talking about. We are talking about households. Just 0.7% of people living in the freaking home together were infected by a primary index case that was asymptomatic. Go and extrapolate that and let your mind run wild for most of what we're doing in life is has nothing to do with the household. It's all based on a premise of maybe an asymptomatic person is going to come into a store, a restaurant even pass you on a, on the open street. What is the percentage of asymptomatic people infecting people outside of a household? We don't have an answer to that. But it's going to be a lot less than 1 out of 60, which is what the rate in um household transmission is. Right, that's an important observation on this study. This study was all household cases. So there you go. It's actually, yeah. Wait, wait, what did I tell you? One out of 60? I'm sorry, I made that up. It's 0.7%, meaning less than 1%. It's, um... It's like one out of 142 chance that you're going to be infected by someone asymptomatically in a household. Outside, it's probably well over one in a thousand. But let's take the 0.7 percent number, the one out of what uh, out of 142. To begin with, according to WHO, we now know the death rate for COVID if you're under 70 which is almost the entire workforce, is 0.05%. Ben Martin, one of our buddies at Rational Ground on our list, he put out on Twitter, do you know what this means? What is your chance of dying from the virus after coming into contact with a person who's infected with no symptoms? It's 0.00035%. In other words, you have a 1 in 285,714 chance of dying from an asymptomatic person in a household. So it's 1 out of 285,000 in a household. I'm sure it's well over 1 in a million outside your home if you're under 70. Think about that for a minute. All built upon a lie. But you know what? It's too big to fail. The testing industrial complex, which is built upon trying to identify asymptomatic people, because if you're symptomatic, you don't need a test. My former colleague, Jordan Schachtel, put out that at 2 million tests per day, he figured out, if you look at the median cost per test, the industry is earning... $254 $254 million a day, $7.6 billion a month, and $91.4 billion a year. Just on testing. Too big to fail. 
Then we go on to the deaths. We're hearing like, there's like 3,600 deaths a day now. Everyone's dying. It's, it's like the worst it's ever been or on par with April. The Grand County Coroner, this is in Grand County, Colorado, is calling attention to the way state health department is classifying some deaths. This is Denver CBS local. The coroner, Brenda Bach, says two of their two of their five deaths related to COVID were people who died of gunshot wounds. Bach says because they tested positive for COVID within the past 30 days, they were classified as deaths among cases. It's absurd that they would even put them that on there. Would you want to go in a county that has a really high death numbers? Would you want to go visit a county because they are contagious? You know, I might want to, I might get it and I could die if all of a sudden one county has a high death count. We don't have it and we don't need those numbers inflated. There you go. Gunshot wounds. And clearly there's a lot more of this going on. Because clearly, if you look at the mortality, we really are not seeing excess deaths that speak to this number. We're just not seeing it that are reflective of 300,000 COVID deaths. And what it means is basically everyone dying naturally. I mean, again, we're doing 2 million tests a day. So anyone who tested positive, I mean, this is unbelievable. We are being lied to. You take CDC's excess death data. Now, I know they backfill it, so you can't look at December because it's still going to be updated. But certainly through October, really into the first half of November is pretty much complete. It's usually about a three to four week lag in the numbers. And you basically look at them and you see that non-COVID deaths have dropped well below normal. And the trend makes no sense. The trend makes no sense. During the week of April 4th, okay, that was the peak. The beginning, we reported 10,000 COVID deaths. Now, legitimately, the the numbers were always inflated, but we said maybe it's like 20% inflation. And I think that was a good estimate. Because if you look at total deaths, total deaths for that week were 72,200 total deaths. That's a lot for a week of deaths. That's a clear excess. Okay, 72,200. You look at the week of November 15th. Okay? The week of November 15th. They're telling us there were 9,300 COVID deaths, almost back up to the worst weeks we've ever had. But this time, there were 61,500 total deaths, 11,000 fewer overall deaths. Now, remember, if anything, we're more in the flu season than, than in April. Not the peak of it, but it's getting there. And we have 11,000 fewer deaths. And mind you, we have record drug deaths now. We know that. Suicides and everything, all the lockdown deaths are eating out of that too. So how many of the 9,300 are real? And I think the answer is we are really headed to a point 
where more than 50% of the deaths are bogus. That's my best estimate. Utterly insane. And look, we're seeing the same thing in Sweden. Everyone's talking about Sweden. They're, they're finally getting their COVID deaths. But not really. You look at excess deaths, and they don't have it. Sweden's two-year mortality rate in 2019-2020, we've noted this many times, is very low. It's the lowest in 10 years. They had a very light flu season. So the deaths only slightly increase, but not in proportion to the population. So mortality has actually decreased there. 2020 will have more deaths than 2019, but 2019 was record low. It will be about a 5 to 7% increase compared to 2018. Now you might say, well, Daniel, that is a 5 to 7% increase of deaths. But we had roughly a 5% drop in 2019 from 2018. So it cancels it out. It's people who lived beyond their actuarial, actuarial expected death point. Remember, there's people who die early. There's people, statistically speaking, who live a little longer than normal. And that's what COVID hit. It was their time to go, for the most part. We are being lied to about everything. Folks, question everything you see, everything you hear. We're about out of time now. We're going to have at least one more show before we go on vacation. And then again, we're going to have, I'm going to try to do maybe a few podcasts. They're not going to be consecutive, but we'll we'll get you covered. I'm also, when I come back from my trip Wednesday night next week, I will start putting out short videos at Minimum Speak Easy. So if you haven't signed up for our Facebook fan page, Minimum Speak Easy, uh, make sure you do so. We're going to have a special uh, doctor tomorrow on, a special guest to discuss all the COVID lies in greater detail. Send me your comments, questions, concerns, your notes, your strategies, dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Stay armed and stay informed.